Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Today is Palm Sunday, and I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at this passage in order to better prepare us for Friday the cross, and then, of course, next Sunday, the resurrection. Now, the Gospel of Mark was written to give us a true and accurate picture of Jesus, and he shows us that Jesus is the Lord God Almighty in human flesh who came to seek and to save the lost. In the first 10 chapters, Mark shows us that Jesus is indeed both 100% man and 100% God at the same time. That Jesus is the one in authority and everything, even nature and even demons, obeys his commands. And look, here's the good news, that because of who Jesus is and because of what he will soon do on the cross for all who believe, look, he can rescue your soul from the death grip of the wicked one. And he can save your soul from eternal wrath by grace through faith in him alone as Lord and Savior. And Mark shows us these eternal, awesome truths. The question is, how do you respond to him? How do you respond to Christ? Now at this point in chapter 11, Jesus is now making his way to Jerusalem where the cross looms large. In the previous passage, Jesus healed the blind man from Jericho, and now we find him coming to the end of the nearly 18-mile, dangerous, nearly 4,000-foot uphill climb from Jericho to Jerusalem. Let's find out what happens next, verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing? Loosing the colt. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. And so they let them go. We'll stop here for now. And here in today's passage, we find seven facts to take note of. And the first fact is this, that Jesus and the twelve drew near to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem wasn't just any old city, not at all. Jerusalem was clearly the most important city in the Bible. And after David died and the temple was built, Jerusalem became the great center of all the civil and religious affairs of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. See, Jerusalem is where the temple was at. This is where the worship of the one true God was was centralized. This is where God's manifest presence was. And this really was the center of everything for the people of God. And now, Jesus and his disciples are making their way into this most amazing city. Why? Why? I mean, Jesus has been waiting on the other side of the Jordan River for quite a while, and now it's time for him to come into Jerusalem. So why now? Here's why. Because it was Passover. Other Gospels make it clear that Jesus has been planning things this way for nine months, ministering to many people along the way, of course, but clearly making sure that they end up in Jerusalem during Passover, which is exactly what happens. Let me remind you that the Passover was the greatest of the three great annual festivals for the Jews. 
If you remember, the Passover goes way back to the book of Exodus when the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. And in order for the Jewish people to be freed from their hundreds of years of bondage in Egypt, God brought nine plagues on the Egyptians with the tenth plague being the death of the firstborn. Now, in order for the Jews to be saved from this horrible death plague, a lamb with no defects had to be killed, and its blood had to be smeared on the door frames of each Israelite home. And if the blood of the lamb was applied to the door frames, then the Lord would pass over those homes and spare them from death. And so, while all of Egypt mourned because so many had died in this horrible plague, the Israelites not only survived the plague, but they were freed. And they were freed not only from death, but also they were freed from their bondage in Egypt. And so every year they celebrated Passover when they were passed over from the death angel. Now, during this time, the city of Jerusalem was flooded with people who were celebrating this great festival. See, three times a year, Passover being one of those times, the Jews were supposed to make their way into Jerusalem where they would celebrate and where they would worship God there in the temple. During Passover, they would celebrate together. They would slaughter their, slaughter their Passover lambs as a reminder of what God has done. And they would worship the Lord for His great deliverance of His people. And doesn't it just make sense that Jesus died during Passover? Right? I mean, right? 1 Corinthians 5, 7 talks about Christ, our Passover. And just as the blood of the Passover lamb saved the Israelites from death, so does the blood of the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, allow us who believe to be saved from eternal death, to be passed over in the judgment, to be forgiven of all our sin, and to be delivered forever by grace through faith in Christ because of what he did. So it makes sense that Jesus had to be in Jerusalem at this time during Passover, and now the stage is set. Passover is just a few days away, and therefore, the city was very crowded, it was noisy, and there were people everywhere. And it's in this environment that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the Sunday morning before his death, Palm Sunday, today. Now, please note that not only was the city crowded for Passover, but it wasn't long ago and in a town nearby that Jesus had raised Lazarus up from the dead. Mark didn't record that event, but that did indeed happen. And undoubtedly, the people all around were talking about it. Undoubtedly, the expectations for Jesus at this time were extremely high. This, I can hear him, this is our Messiah. Jesus is the one. Jesus is our conquering king, and it's time for him to act like our conquering king, Messiah. And that was the idea on the minds of the people at this time, as we're going to see. Note that the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the Christ, the coming deliverer, spoke of both a suffering servant and of a conquering king. And as a people of Christ, they were being oppressed by the Romans. They were eagerly looking for their conquering king, Messiah, deliverer. They didn't really want a spiritual deliverer. No, no. They wanted a physical deliverer. Even though, come on, even though a spiritual deliverer is much better and lasts much, much longer. But no, they wanted conquest. They wanted national freedom and power. They wanted a ruler to come along and and stomp out the Romans. And here's Jesus. And he seems like the Messiah. But up to this point, there's still much confusion about Jesus. Why? Why is there confusion? Because as one said, 
He's meek and lowly and humble and submissive. And he pays taxes to Rome. And he's hated by the leaders of Israel. And it's so not what they expected. You know that even John the Baptist was confused about this at at one point in time? John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. John pointed others to Christ saying, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet even then, he got a little confused. See, he was put into prison by Herod, if you remember, and things just don't seem right to John. So he sent some of his followers who came to Jesus and said, we want to know whether you're the Messiah or should we look for somebody else. Isn't that amazing? This is John asking this. Jesus eased his worries on the issue, of course, but it seems clear that while John and the disciples knew that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and the Son of God, they still vacillated because he did things so differently from what they had expected. We believe you're the Messiah, but we don't remotely understand the plan. Why aren't you taking charge? Why aren't you leading in a revolution? Because we're ready. Why aren't you conquering like we thought you would? Get on with it. Back in Mark chapter 8, Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ and he got it right. He knew Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. But the plan, what about the plan to rule and to conquer and to deliver us from the Romans? So the plan was still confusing. And even though Jesus laid out the plan perfectly for them, more than once, the Son of Man will suffer and die and rise from the dead, they they couldn't grasp it. They couldn't grasp it, clearly. Yes, uh, Jesus is the Messiah. We got it. Amen. (laughs) Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. It's very clear. He's the promised one who will deliver his people from all his enemies. Amen. Amen. He's the king of kings uh, who rules over an eternal kingdom. He's the one to whom the Old Testament prophecies pointed. He's the deliverer, the ruler, the savior. Lord, he's it. Jesus Christ. He's it. Jesus is the name. Christ is the title. Some of you call me Pastor John, title, and then name. Jesus Christ is the name and then the title. He is Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the ruler of God's kingdom and the deliverer for God's people. But again, why isn't he conquering and ruling? We know who he is. What about the plan? Why isn't he leading us in victory over our oppressors as the Messiah? Why not? Here's why. Because their expectations were wrong. And while the next time he comes, he will indeed be that conquering king Messiah, the first time he came was to be our suffering servant who will lay down his life to bring spiritual and to bring eternal deliverance for his needy, desperate, and lost people, which is far, far, far better. Anybody? I mean, the the, the other's good too, but this this is better. But that's not what they wanted. And that's not what they expected. And all the while, here's Jesus, and he knows what's coming. And he's walking into it. He knows that the people's expectations of him are going to be absolutely crushed. He knows that these crowds are going to turn on him and mock him and cheer on his death. He knows that on Thursday night and Friday that he's going to suffer more than any man has ever suffered in all of history as he takes on not just horrible physical brutality, but also as he faces spiritual wrath against sin, against our sin as believers. He knows, but he still walks on. What an amazing God we have. Second, look, verse 1 says that 
they now drew near Jerusalem to Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And at this point, Jesus is about two miles outside of Jerusalem on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. The other side of the Mount of Olives is Jerusalem. What do we know about the Mount of Olives? Well, in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives is mentioned once in relation to King David. When David's son Absalom wrestled control of Jerusalem out of David's hands, David and his loyal followers fled the city the same way that Jesus is now entering into the city. 2 Samuel 15.30 says, David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. Later on, King Solomon used the Mount of Olives for idol worship. On a hill east of Jerusalem, that's the Mount of Olives, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, 1 Kings 11.7. Also, in one of Ezekiel's visions, the prophet sees the glory of the Lord depart from Jerusalem and come to rest above the mountain east of it, that's the Mount of Olives, Ezekiel 11.23. We also know from the Gospels that Jesus made many visits here when he was in Jerusalem. And also, as Acts one twelve says, the top of this mount, the Mount of Olives, is a place where Jesus ascended into heaven. And then, according to the prophet Zechariah, Jesus will return not only the same way, but also to the same place. Zechariah 14.4 says in a prophecy relating to the end times, he says this, that on the day... On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. So, this is a very significant place, the Mount of Olives. And so, on one side of the Mount of Olives sits the Garden of Gethsemane, and it gives you a great view of the city of Jerusalem. Bethany is on the other side of the Mount of Olives, and as Jesus drew near to the suburbs of Jerusalem, Bethphage and Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives, he sends two of his disciples ahead of him, probably to the village of Bethphage, to get a colt that's never been ridden for him to ride into the city on, down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. Jesus says, go get, go get it. If anyone says, why are you doing this? Why, why are you loosing it? Then you respond by saying, because the Lord needs it. Now, obviously, something supernatural is going on here for Jesus to know about the colt and then for the owners to know to let the disciples take it. But what I love about this is that they went, you know, I mean, they, they, they couldn't, uh, that couldn't have been an easy thing for them to do. Picture them as they hurry ahead to the next village and then as they enter the village and they see that colt tied there. What are they going to do? They begin untying the colt. It's not theirs. They unhigh it. Think about that. I mean, that's real faith in action. This is real obedience. But they knew Jesus and they trusted Jesus. And if he says it's okay, then it must be okay. So they obeyed. Hey, what are you guys doing? Loosing that colt. That's mine. What are you doing? Well, the Lord has need of it. Okay, off you go. That's what happened. And that's the third fact from this passage. The disciples obeyed. Look, they, they did exactly what he commanded them to do. They didn't make excuses. They, they didn't waver when they got to where the cult was at. They didn't try to reinterpret his words to them. No, but instead they obeyed and they trusted him with the outcome, whatever that outcome may be. Hey, their obedience to Jesus here, it could have gotten them into real trouble, but they still obeyed. Their obedience could have been Quite uncomfortable for them, but they still obeyed. And they're examples to us because many waver. See, many obey God when it's easy, but then they compromise the minute things get a little hard. 
They obey God when it's comfortable, but they make excuses when it gets a little bit uncomfortable. They obey God when there's no cost to their obedience, but when there's a cost, they turn and flee the other way. Many do that, but but not the disciples here. See, if we love and trust God, then we obey God. And sometimes that obedience will be tough. Sometimes that obedience will be costly. Sometimes that obedience will be painful. But the call remains the call nonetheless as followers of Christ, our deliverer, our beloved Savior and Lord. To do what he tells us, as he tells us, when he tells us, because he tells us. Because we love him. It's not always easy, right? But it is our call. But it's important for us as lovers of our good God. As Spurgeon said, obedience is the hallmark of faith. He's right. Sinclair Ferguson said to be obedient even when you don't know where your obedience may lead you. So you obey because he's worthy of obedience, whatever the cost. And then as John Calvin said, not, no man will actually obey God, but he who loves God. And that's true. And that's what these disciples were doing. They loved God, so they obeyed God. They believed Him. They trusted Him. They loved Him. And even though they didn't know what would happen to them with taking this cult that wasn't theirs, they still obeyed Him. And we do well to follow that example. How are you doing? Hey, away with the, the, the partial obedience that's so popular today. Away with excuses. Away with the half-baked obedience that's so prevalent in our day. Instead, as lovers of God, obey Him radically and from the heart, compelled by love and without argument. That's our call. That's our call. Notice one more thing before we move on. The Lord has need of it. Isn't that interesting? The Lord has need of it. Hey, when did God ever need anything? Well, only when He took on human flesh. Only when He took on human flesh. That's the incredible paradox of our Lord's earthly life, right? He was rich, yet He became poor. He owned all things, yet He possessed nothing. He created the stars, yet He had nowhere to lay His head. He fashioned everything there is out of nothing, yet He had to borrow a boat from which to preach His gospel. He created every drop of water that exists in this world, yet He cried, I thirst, as He's dying on that cross. He created every tree, but He died on a piece of wood that He created. He created every rock, but he had to borrow a tomb from which to be buried, but just for a couple of days. He used the clouds as his chariot, yet here he had to borrow a donkey on which to ride. What a paradox. What a God. And look, he did all this to save us from the wrath that all of us so rightfully deserves. And if that doesn't spark something in your heart, then nothing will. Look at who he is and look at what he did to save you. We're going to look at that more on Friday and then, of course, on Sunday. Look at what he did for us when he took on human flesh to rescue our souls from the fires of hell, the eternal fires of hell. Fourth, look, Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, verses 7 through 11. Look, then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and they sat on it. Many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, 
as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Isn't that interesting? I mean, why did Jesus need that cult? Specifically, a young cult. Why not just walk into Jerusalem? I think that might have been easier. Here's why. Because over 500 years earlier, Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah, the Deliverer, would come riding on a foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. And so, in doing this, Jesus is indeed identifying himself as the Messiah. I mean, what a day. Look what happened. The disciples returned with the donkey. They then put their outer garments onto the donkey in place of a saddle. Jesus then climbed onto the donkey's back, and then he started down the mountain on that donkey. And please note that the way down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem is steep. It's extremely steep. See, to get to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, you first have to go way, way down into the Kidron Valley, and then you have to go back up to get into Jerusalem. And it's not an easy walk, but of course, Jesus didn't do this uh, on a donkey because it was a hard walk for him. That's not why he did it. He did it to fulfill that prophecy and to announce who he truly is. He's the Messiah. He's the Deliverer. And here in this, we see a humble man on the back of a humble beast making a humble declaration of his true identity. So here he comes, riding down that mount on a donkey. Fifth fact, the people acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. Look what happened. Jesus is riding on that colt into Jerusalem, as the prophecy says, and that's when the people then begin to spread their garments on the ground, which was a gesture of reverence. This was an act of respect, see? It was an act that was reserved only for the highest form of royalty, and here the crowds were, and they're doing this for Jesus. The thought, the Messiah is here. Our deliverer has come. Mark tells us that they also cut down some leafy branches, palm branches from trees, and then they spread those branches out on the road. And this act is, again, very significant, because for about two centuries before this point in time, palm branches had become a national symbol that signaled the hope that the Messiah would come to free Israel from its bondage. And in doing this, the people were showing their belief in Jesus as their Messiah, as their deliverer. Finally, look, to top everything else off, verse 9 says that the whole multitude of followers cried out. Luke's account says that they began to rejoice and praise God for all the mighty works that they had seen. What a day. What a, an, an incredible celebration. Hosanna! Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I talk about exciting. Talk about emotional. Talk about high expectations. Picture it. Jesus riding on that colt, fulfilling that prophecy. The, the crowds, the throngs of people lining that street shouting, praising God laying down their garments and grabbing those palm branches. It's truly an incredible event. And in the people's minds, man, this is it. This is it. And they just knew, they knew that Jesus was now going to go into Jerusalem, proclaim himself as the Messiah, and then begin his messianic conquering reign. This was it. What a day. Don't you wonder who was in the crowd that day? 
I would imagine Barnabas was there since he followed Jesus after Jesus healed him of his blindness. I would also imagine that many other people that Jesus had healed were in the crowd that day. And it's certainly an amazing celebration as people from all over are entering into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover later on that week. Look at this. Hosanna, which originally meant save we pray, but would later become an exclamation of praise. Perhaps the the people meant in saying this, save we pray from our Roman oppressors. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a clear recognition that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. See, the Messiah will come from the line of David. And they thought that the kingdom promised to David's son was now about to be set up with Christ sitting on the throne in this messianic, ruling, conquering kingdom. The point, again, are we clear? Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's it. And today, today is the day that it all begins for him. And it's the day that it all begins for us. See? No. Mark doesn't relate this, but Luke tells us that the Pharisees are very upset about this whole thing. They want Jesus to tell his followers to stop shouting. But look, Jesus tells them that if these people stop, then the very rocks would cry out. In other words, prophecy is being fulfilled, and Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and no one is going to stop this. But here's a question. Why did Jesus let this happen? All this fanfare, all this pomp, why? I mean, it's not like him up to this point, to allow this. Here's why. He did it to force the Jewish religious leaders to act during the Passover when it was ordained for him to die. See, when Jesus rode into the city on that Sunday, he proclaimed his kingship, oh yes, but he also signed his own death warrant. Because now he's not hiding it for its time. And now the religious leaders who wanted him dead a long time ago, they are now going to make sure that that becomes a reality. Question, why did they want Jesus dead? For a number of bad reasons. First, they were jealous of Jesus. When Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, it meant that his authority outweighed their authority, which they hated. Also, the attention that Jesus was getting brought out the leader's hatred and and their jealousy so much so that they wanted Jesus dead. They wanted people to follow them, not someone else. They liked the approval of men, and now they're losing some of that approval because of Jesus, so they wanted to kill him. Second, the deeds of Jesus angered the religious leaders. He healed people, but rather than believe Jesus to be the Messiah, they attributed Jesus' power to the devil. How do you deal with spiritual blindness like that? Clearly, Jesus was of God based on what he said and based on what he did. And they turn it around and say the exact opposite about him. It all reveals their wicked hearts. And because Satan opposes God and his people, the Pharisees opposed Jesus, who was clearly God. Third, Jesus was a threat to their religious system. He pointed out their hypocrisy and they hated him even more because of it. He was exposing their hard, calloused hearts, see, and rather than repenting and being saved, they grew harder and they opposed him even more. Fourth, Jesus was a threat to their way of life. See, there were political reasons that the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead because of the unstable situation between the Jews and the Romans. If Jesus was the Messiah who would lead in a rebellion against Rome, which was indeed the thought of the day, 
then that would ruin their own power within the current system. And we can't have that. So let's kill Jesus so we can stay in power. Fifth, Jesus offended their prideful religious leaders. He he offended them because he ate and drank with sinners. So when Jesus kept company with those individuals, people like us, you know, it infuriated the proud Pharisees and the other religious rulers. Sixth, Jesus disregarded their man-made religious traditions that they exalted even above the Word of God and what God's Word clearly said. It was all external to them. It was all a show to them. It wasn't real. They were massive hypocrites. And while they held to their traditions legalistically, their hearts were cold, they were hard, and they were wicked. And so Jesus exposed their cold, hard, wicked hearts by not honoring their traditions, and they hated Him for it, and they wanted Him dead for it. In Mark 3, it was after Jesus broke one of their sinful, made-up traditions that they first began to plot to have Jesus killed. In the end, they wanted Jesus dead because they were wicked and they opposed God and they opposed the things of God even though they wore a religious mask. See, it was their hypocrisy, it was their pride, it was their arrogance that caused them to bring Jesus before Pilate to be crucified. They didn't want to hear the truth of God Therefore, they wanted Jesus dead. But the crowds are all in, right? What do you think? They're acknowledging Jesus as their Messiah, right? They're all in, right? Wrong. They're no better than the religious leaders as a whole, generally speaking. John, is it possible to worship Jesus and be a false worshiper in that worship? Is it possible to worship the right person, but still be a phony worshiper as I'm worshiping the right person, Jesus? Is that possible? Answer, yes. Look, this crowd as a whole was worshiping the right person, Jesus, the Lord God Almighty, which is very, very good. But they were worshiping him for all the wrong reasons, and that is ungodly. They weren't worshiping him for who he truly is. They weren't worshiping him because he is worthy of worship. They weren't worshiping him because they loved him and because they revered and honored him. No, they were doing all of this not to glorify him, but to get something from him. That's wicked. They were doing this for themselves and for what he could do for them, not because he's worthy. And that's sinful. And look what happened. When Jesus didn't give them what they wanted, when their expectations weren't met, when he didn't conquer the Romans like they wanted him to do, they turned on him in an instant. And as we've seen before, these same worshipers who were lining the streets on Palm Sunday were the ones who were yelling, crucify him on Friday. And that proves how fake their worship on this day really was. I'll worship him as long as he makes me happy. And I'll worship him as long as he, as he fulfills my expectations for him in my own life. Really? That is so unbiblical. Happens all the time today, by the way. All the time. False worshipers in the church who worship the right God, but for all the wrong reasons. Who aren't true worshipers, who worship him in spirit and in truth, but who worship him or who are here to say they worship Him for what He can do for them. And it's no better than the fake worshipers in the crowd that day. Question, why do we worship Jesus? 
It should be to glorify, honor, praise, exalt, and please Him because we love Him. Because He's worthy of it. And because we know and understand His great mercies towards sinners like us. And we love Him all the more because of it. Look at who He is. He's worthy. Look at what He's done for us. He's worthy. Therefore, I exalt Him. I I glorify Him. I honor Him. I lift Him high. Because I love Him. See, because He alone is worthy as the Lord God Almighty. And then look at what He's done for a wretched old sinful me. Therefore, I raise Him high as the altogether lovely one that He is. He is it. He alone. I exalt Him. Many people these days don't do this, even though they go to church. I'll worship Jesus. I'll honor Jesus. I'll sing to Jesus. I'll go to church. I'll do the church thing with the best of them as long as Jesus gives me what I want. And as long as nothing bad ever happens to me after that. And that's the wrong motive. That's fake. I can guarantee you one day he won't give you what you want. And one day something bad will happen to you. That's life. What then? Look, we don't worship Jesus to have a good marriage. We don't worship Jesus to have better kids or to be healthier or wealthier or happier or to have Jesus fix all of our many issues. No, we worship Jesus because we love Jesus and because He is worthy regardless of what happens to us. Because it's about Him. Not me. Him. All the blessings are a byproduct, and those blessings are are immense, but those are the byproduct, but I don't worship Him because of the byproducts. I worship Him because of Him. How many times have we seen people make a profession of faith, get baptized, and then come to church, but the minute things get hard, they leave Christ high and dry. They call themselves Christians as long as nothing bad really ever happens to me. But if they get cancer, if they get sickness, if everything doesn't turn out perfect for them, they leave. They run. Those are false worshipers who come to Jesus on their terms instead of His. They like to dictate the kind of Jesus that they want. Their designer Jesus. And the minute He doesn't meet their own design, they throw Him out with the trash. How sinful. That's the crowd that day. We've all heard of the health wealth gospel that, that's still prevalent even to this day, right? Who say that if you become a true Christian, then you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy and nothing bad will ever happen to you. What a lie. Yeah, false worshipers. How many people today come to church not to honor and exalt Christ corporately, but they come to church to feel good? Ha, we'll take care of that. Instead of coming to, uh, <laughs> I'm a funny preacher. <laughs> Instead of coming to honor the Lord in the assembly of the saints, they, they come together because they, they like the music or because they like the people. But, but what about the Lord? It's false worship. Instead of coming to church to hear the Word of God preached from the Bible so you can take it in and, and apply it in a God-honoring way for, for His glory because you love Him and you want to please Him, people go to church to hear a message that will make them feel good about themselves and that will help them cope a little better. And it's man-centered. It's not God-centered at all. That's false worship. That, that's self-worship. Instead of coming to church to, to, to give something to God yourself, 
People go to church to get from God, to feel emotional, to be entertained, and so on. And please note that I'm not down on emotion, but it's dangerous if that's the motivation. Love for Jesus should be the motivation. What's your motive for following Jesus? What if following Him means that you suffer? What if following Him isn't easy? What if following Him means that you lose your job or your friends or your loved ones or even some family members, they turn against you? What if? Is He worth it then? I mean, do you love Him even when He doesn't heal you, make your life easier, or ease your personal suffering? What if He doesn't meet all your expectations for Him in your life? Well, if you're a false worshiper and don't worship Jesus for the right reasons, then guess what? Down the line, you will undoubtedly end up like the crowd did five days later because Jesus has a way of exposing the true condition of people's hearts. What's the prayer? That we will have hearts that love Jesus for who He is and for what He's done and that we will worship and exalt and lift Him high even when our expectations aren't met and even when bad things happen because guess what? He's still worthy. Amen? He's still worthy. And, and Christian, he saved your soul from eternity in hell too. So there's that. Seventh, look, Jesus went into the temple, looked around, and then went to Bethany. Isn't that interesting? Hey, now is the time to lead the people in victory as the Messiah. But he basically did the opposite. And that had to have had the crowd wondering, uh, He's sure not acting like we thought the Messiah would act after recognizing him as the Messiah. So what was Jesus doing? Well, he was planning a strategy for the next day. Look, he went down the Mount of Olives, past Gethsemane, down into the Kidron Valley, and then back up into Jerusalem, into the temple, and then he looked around. What did he see? He saw the beauty of the buildings. He saw the priests carrying out their rituals in the temple. He saw people bringing their sacrifices to the priests. But as a whole, he saw empty ritual that was devoid of true worship. See, there was a lot of false worship going on in Jerusalem on that day. From the people on the Mount of Olives down to the priests in the temple. A lot of fake worship that went through the motions, but that was empty of heart. And notice this, the Lord of glory had visited his house that day and the people were basically ignorant of his presence. They were going through all the religious motions, but they had no room for the true God in their hearts. Empty, rote, ritual, fake worship. So Jesus came, he looked around and made his approval of the horrific corruptions of the temple religion at that time. And then he went back to his friends in Bethany for the night where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. What a day for Jesus. Palm Sunday, today. What a day. A sad time, a sad day for him, I'm sure. Think about that. What's the prayer? That we're not like the false worshipers in Jerusalem that day. But instead... That we worship Jesus in spirit and in truth because we love Him for who He is and what He's done for undeserving, wretched sinners like us. Saved by grace through faith in Christ. William Plummer said, Our beloved Jesus alone can do sinners good. His blood alone atones. He loved us unto death. Jesus has at once an almighty arm and a brother's heart. None is more exalted, yet none stoops so low. None is mightier, yet none is more tender. He is meek and lowly, merciful and mild, and at the same time, He is the omnipotent Jehovah. 
He takes poor, vile, ignorant, guilty, helpless sinners, raises them to sonship with God, and makes them partakers of His holiness. There's none like Him. No, not one. He's the chief among 10,000. Wherever He is, there is heaven. There is none like Jesus. Anybody? Amen? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise, Revelation 5.12. So, what's our call? Worship Him. Worship Him. Exalt Him. Lift Him high, our amazing Savior and Lord. And love Him. Because He's worthy of giving our all to with our dying breath. And please remember Him this week. The final week of Christ leading up to Friday and the cross. And then, of course, Sunday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord, to lift you high. Help us, Lord, to exalt you as our worthy Messiah deliverer. And help us to follow you, to love you, to worship you for the right reason, because you are worthy in light of who you are and in light of what you've done for us. So Lord, help us to examine ourselves and may we worship you for the right reason. May we cast aside self and look unto you and follow you and obey you and love you till we go to glory. Speak to our hearts. May we encourage one another and may our hearts be prepared this week for worshiping you on Friday and then of course, Resurrection Sunday. For your glory, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.